Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Message from our sponsor, Curtis Brown Creative. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 160 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in writing for younger readers, why not join their new six-week online writing young adult and middle grade fiction course with exclusive teaching videos, resources and writing tasks from award-winning author Patrice Lawrence. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your YA or middle grade novel and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing, YA and middle grade fiction or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon and myself spoke to the children's author and illustrator Lauren Child. We spoke to Lauren about her hit books, including the Charlie and Lola and Clarice Bean series, her process of writing and illustrating, and the effect of celebrity authors on the children's publishing landscape. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Lauren, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Rachel and I wanted to start with the manifesto that you sent over to us um, on the value of writing and particularly the, the value of artistic work for children. Could you tell us a bit about how that came about as a project and the role that the Foundling Museum played? And then why did you think it was needed? Well, that was interesting because Caro Howe had asked me to be a fellow of the Foundling. And, and that was very interesting because she she invites all kinds of artists from all kinds of different disciplines. And I often find as a writer who principally works in the sort of children's field that you get sort of overlooked as if you you can't do anything more serious, I suppose, and that you're not quite an adult. There's something there's something really strange about that, where I'm very rarely asked about anything beyond the story that I'm telling. And often, even in that way, quite it's quite superficial. And I started to think about that and then think about how do we feel about our children and their childhoods and what they're taking on board and learning. But also, how do we feel about our child selves? And the more I thought about it, the more I felt like it's a it's a stage to get through almost um, that you're you continue to grow and grow and grow until you can shed this thing called child and and you become an adult. And I thought how actually we're so much more like um, I describe it as more like trees that we just grow we grow with our early experiences and and all, all the injuries and sufferings that we have and then all, also all the nourishment we have and it changes the shape of who we are 
to a degree. It doesn't have to define us, I don't mean that, but it, it has an impact on everything we do in some small way, possibly, but it does have an impact. And, and I love what the foundling do because they recognise that in their work. And I love that they use artists to talk about what it is to be a child, what it is to be an abandoned child, because that's obviously what the Foundling Museum was about, and is still about. But it really thinks beyond just its first remit. It thinks beyond that, and it's a very inclusive place. So I, I, I sort of started writing about that, and, and I started, I've started. I've been writing about it in many guises as well as my time as children's laureate. And this idea of the time that we need to think that we're not given any longer. When do you think that particular attitude towards childhood developed or, or took hold? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's been around for a very, very, very long time or forever. I, I really don't know. I think it's, I can only speak of how it feels in this country. Um... And I understand from friends who grew up in Italy and Spain who who it didn't quite have the same feel for them. Perhaps children in France, children regard children in a slightly more inclusive way. I don't mean that we don't love our children. I mean, it's quite sort of controlling in terms of what they might be experiencing and thinking about. And I worry in our desire to protect that actually we don't protect it can be quite harmful that thing of not explaining and as a children's writer or a writer for children I'm trying to wrestle with those things that I wrestled with not only as a child I still do wrestle with them but it's how you communicate to a child some of the really difficult things in life without frightening you have to give a feeling of a support and reassurance I think um that I think that's part of my my job as a writer for children and what was the reaction to the manifesto like when it came out oh it was quite I was quite sort of I was rather heartened in fact because one writes things and I never really expect anything I feel it's always dangerous to have an expectation of uh, how a book will deal do or how a, how an interview will be received and and indeed how a piece of um, almost like a little essay or something. Um, so I wasn't really expecting anything, and then got some you know very nice messages from particularly other children's writers and illustrators. And some who I've never met, and and some who live a long, long way away. So I didn't realise that it would have that much reach. And you know, that was that was rather heartening. Could we go back now to to your own childhood? Um, who were some of the writers and artists that you admired as a youngster? Well, predominantly it was what we call fine artists, I suppose, but uh, painters and artists, because my father was an art teacher, and passionate and still is passionate about 
visiting galleries and so as children we just followed along because that's what he wanted to do um, and my mother was also very interested so it, that wasn't a conflict she she liked to go too and so we all trotted along you know there'd be times where you didn't want to hang out there so long because my father really looks at a painting you know he, he'll stand looking at it for a very long time because he's studying it like you would read a book but I think there was a real usefulness in that in that it taught me that you can look at something a very long time and learn something very interesting um, that is an experience looking at a painting someone's work it's an experience it's not oh I like that and then walk on and also someone spent an awful long time making that piece of work and that's what you begin to understand when you see it for real and when you see it in a collection of work done at the same time or or perhaps an exhibition of that one artist you see this progression and this understanding and this growing understanding as they work and I think I found that incredibly helpful in terms of learning, learning to be an artist, I suppose. It's all part of it. And my father also talked very, very interestingly about the work. He's not, he's not, he was never really interested in what they were doing at the time. So he's not a, a not history or background person particularly. That's not his thing. He just looks at the design, really, how they design the page, the use of colour, the use of focus, the use of scale, all of those things and how you create something that can often take you right into a world. And it's a flat surface because he was particularly I mean, we studied everything. We went to see everything. So from, you know, Giotto and right to the present day. And he's interested in it all. So it taught me you don't have to, you don't have to choose. You don't have to, you, you, you know, you don't have to choose a, a time that you're particularly interested in, or you're not interested in this because you're in, interested in this. Rather like with music, you can you can love it all or, or, or love portions of it, but you can be interested in it all. Um, so I think I learned most from looking at those artists. And I think it's possible to see that in my work and it's a very good way of explaining to children if they want to understand how I work I can I can talk about that flat surface and post-impressionism and how they used a surface um, to you know create this yeah, incredible world just when it, you know it's small pretty small and then there were also of course there were the books that I loved as a child, particularly, there were two American authors I loved, uh, Betsy Byers, who's an astonishing writer. She's only recently died, actually. And she wrote a book called The 18th Emergency, which I've talked about a lot because you could read it. I did have to read it recently and still think it's an astonishing piece of work. And she taught me that you can be both funny or that life is both funny and tragic, all at the same time. And that, you know, the things that you see as you walk down the street, you can go through lots and lots of different emotions, just, just looking at things. And you see somebody having the most awful day, and then you see somebody, you know, laughing their head off. 
and and that's what it's all about and I think that made me realize oh there's not one thing and so I understand why we sometimes do have you know prizes for a comic book as in ha-ha book but actually I don't think something has to be defined that way, but I understand why 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 prizes get started for that because often books that are funny get overlooked as if they're trivial. Far from it, you know, they're they're incredibly important, but I don't think something has to be one thing or the other. Could you tell us about um, the time before your first book was published in terms of the going to art school and then in your twenties doing these these various jobs working for Damien Hurst. Tell us about, about that period of, of your life before you had published your first work. Well, I had a, a real problem deciding what to do at sort of 18, 19. And I, and I, was, I always found making decisions very difficult. I've got a lot better at it now, but I, it really was terrifying and it sent me into this awful spiral of anxiety that if you make a choice at that age that will define the rest of everything and I couldn't decide what I wanted to do I knew it had something to do with drawing and making things Um, but there were so many things I was interested in and I decided I'd go to St. Martin's. That was the place I wanted to go in London. And and I'd been to visit them a couple of times. So I'd done all the groundwork to go there. And then I had this extraordinary wobble and just didn't know what to do because my father felt, you know, I think he'd been quite keen that I did fine art. And I knew I didn't have the mindset for that because you have to be so self-driven and there is no... You know, I didn't know how, how would I propel myself and give myself that momentum when there's nothing, you know, there's no deadline, there's no, there's no one telling me we need this, there's no commission. So that kind of came in um, to un- sort of destabilise me a little bit. And then he'd been up to see Manchester Art School and he got, he really liked the dean in charge and and so I think I was very much under his um influence at that time my father's influence so I I did what he thought was right and I went to Manchester and it was absolutely the wrong decision for me and I I chose to do illustration which didn't have a graphic design part to it which the St Martin's course did you you did illustration and graphic design at that point and that would have been brilliant for me because I'm really interested in that side um and it's it was a bit of a a problem that I I think it's been frustrating to me um that I I never learned that so I left after a year and had a bit of a a rethink of everything applied for all kinds of courses from I think textiles architecture illustration fine art I think there was one other I can't remember. So I, I, it was like a sort of scattergun approach to where shall I go? And the only one I got turned down for, ironically, was the illustration course. Um, and so I ended up, I went, I went to a very, very small art school um, in Kennington. Um, and I did a, a sort of mixed media type course. And... 
I don't know how much that helped either, but I stuck it out. And but I came out absolutely bewildered at the time that the big recession had just begun. So it was a terrible time to come out of art school. And I'd come out very confident for some reason. And I just felt very depleted by the whole thing. But I was good about going long, you know, and cold calling people and having ideas and having meetings. And I did all that sort of thing. But it was a very, very difficult time. You had your breakthrough in 1999 with I Want a Pet and Clara's Bean, That's Me. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you wrote those books and what the path to publication was in each case? Uh-huh. Well, I must have written the Clara's Bean in probably around 95, I think. Possibly a little bit earlier, maybe 94. And I'd had many attempts at writing books for children before. In fact, the first one I did, I I wrote with a friend when I think we were 18 or 19, and it did get accepted. I mean, we got a a publisher really interested in it. And, um, you know, it was really funny because I remember them taking us seriously. That was really exciting at that age. And they took us out for this business lunch. And, you know, obviously we'd never been out for a kind of lunch lunch in that way before, you know, as we're taking you seriously. And the editor suggested all these changes and improvements, which were absolutely right. We weren't objecting to any of them. We just didn't bother to do them because we'd got everything we needed from having the business lunch. And um, I'm very grateful that we never did get the book published. But it's so, I find it sort of somehow delightful that real confidence of, of youth that we just thought, well, this thing, probably, this will probably happen again. So we don't, we don't need to do this. But actually, as I soon learned, it was way, way more difficult than that. And so I started writing all these, these things. I, I guess I, I sort of came back, yeah, came, sort of came out of college in the end at around 25, because I, w- I went traveling and all of that. And so I suddenly there I am in the middle of a recession, trying to sort of create a business in a way of what I do. And then finding, oh, nobody's really interested in what you do. And I was trying to write a children's book. And that sort of says it all, because that is not how you approach it, really. I mean, that's my opinion. You don't really approach, I'm trying to write a book. It's you've either got something to say and you feel it, or you don't. And... I think I was trying to sort of people please in a way. So I'm thinking that you can tick this off your list of things that you'd rather like to be able to do. So you can say, I've written a children's book. And I kept having all these thoughts and ideas and they were just not very good. There might've been something, there might've been enough in, in them because every time I submitted one, the publisher would see me, but they always found um, legitimate fault with them and and would try and help and say maybe look at this maybe look at that and the and the ideas as I continued to rework them just became worse and worse because then I'm really trying to please and I'm not doing anything I'm interested in and they would I remember very clearly they would sort of 
show me the very hungry caterpillar or something. This is a very successful book. This is a book that really works. You think, yeah, but it's been written. And that was the sort of moment I realized you can't write a book that's already been written. You can't write a book like somebody else. You can't illustrate like someone else. You have to find your own voice. And I sort of felt like, oh, I'm done with it. I can't do this. And so I started writing a film or something I thought might be a film because I, that's always been my first love really is cinema. And I didn't know how to do that either, but I didn't have anyone to tell me how not to do it and how to do it. And I, that was quite good. I had no one to show it to. So I, um, I just started writing and drawing at the same time. And it was all dialogue. And I realized I'm quite good at writing dialogue because I watch a lot and I like listening to people talking. And I realized I'm interested in character. I'm not really interested in plot. First and foremost, it's a character that's really important to me. And I think that really released me because I stopped trying to plot something out and trying to find a story arc. I just followed the characters. And out of that came Clarice Bean, that's me. And I didn't know if it was gonna turn into a novel actually and be much darker, become an adult book. But then Roddy Doyle's book, Paddy Clark, ha ha ha, I think had come out just around that time. And I thought, oh, I don't wanna be seen writing from a child's point of view. And it will look like I'm just sort of jumping on the back of something that's already been done very well. It's not really a logical way to think, but that's how I was thinking. And then the film thing, I wasn't quite sure how to present it to anyone. And then somebody I trusted said, do you know what, Lauren, I think you've written a children's book or a book that would work for children. So maybe if you adapted in this way, that will happen. So that that was how I actually wrote it. And within children's publishing, both at that time and today, was it crucial to have an agent was that a necessary way in I mean how did you go about getting it in front of the right people I don't know how long I spent working on the book but it was probably quite a long time because I did it sort of here and there and I I worked up some drawings with the graphics over the top so with the text was integral to the illustration it was really important the way it was laid out and it all had purpose and meaning so every character had a different font so you could hear their voice as you looked at the pages so I had a sort of real I'd really thought through all of those things I didn't have an agent at all I was just sort of working in the dark and as I say I really didn't know what I was doing but that was the best thing about it so I was liberated from worrying about it because I stopped going to publishers while I was doing it and then I did submit it and the brilliant thing about the years of, of failure previous to writing this was that I could hear a difference in the way they turned it down and they were turning it down regretfully. So I think that was very important for me to understand. And if I hadn't had those years of having work turned down and then being told to adjust it in this way or this way, I would have done exactly the same to Clarice Bean and I would have ruined it because there were publishers who said you can't have the illustrations and the writing done in that way it's too confusing it's too complicated why don't you get rid of the pictures 
or get rid of the writing, one or the other. You could make this into a poetry book or, or just do it as an illustrated book with much simpler text. Um, and because I knew I'd done something good, I ignored them. I do remember a publisher saying, you, you do know this will never be published. And I felt really fine about that. I said, well, so be it, because I feel I've done something that I'm pleased with. So I'd rather it wasn't published than I make these adjustments. Um, so then I, I went to America with it. I showed it to a publishing house there. They said, it, oh, it's, it's far too English. I showed it to publishers here and they said it's far too American. And, you know, it's just, it was kind of bewildering the whole thing. Then I, I found a publisher who was really, really interested in it and wanted to take it, but she couldn't get a co-publisher. So they needed American rights on board in order to afford to do it. And that was very much the case. I don't know if it's still the case now, but when 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 someone like me was starting out, they they nearly always seem to want to have extra money coming in from another publisher. So it just sort of it didn't do anything at the publishing houses, but from that I was able to get an agent um, because I think they were interested in the fact that publishers had been interested in it. But even so, it still remained unpublished for maybe, I don't know, four years, five years. Could we return to your love of film? Um, you've cited Woody Allen and Tim Burton as, as influences. How did their work shape your understanding of storytelling? I think watching Edward Scissorhands was incredibly, it was like a moment for me. And it was before I'd written Clarice Bean. But what I saw... In that film was very exciting because I saw a vision, a whole thing. So, although yes, there's a screenwriter, and and then obviously you've got your casting director, and you've got your costume designer, and your set designer, and your director, and they're all different people. It's still very much a film that couldn't be made without him. It's it's his vision. Um, just as uh, the same way that Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers um, make their films, I also love as well because they have this this cohesiveness. You you just feel like you're entering a world that could have only be made by them, and that made me think about if I'm writing and illustrating or. In my case, I was creating something with the idea of it becoming a film. I wanted to give it that strength of, you know, that sort of identity, that sort of, it's a whole world. It's not necessarily a real world because there is no such thing, you know, it, it, you know how people see the world is, is different. You can't make a film that's a whole truth. So it's just, it's just this sort of moment and it's your, it's your way of showing a truth about about something um and so I guess that's when I created Clarice Bean yes it was about that and I suppose the Woody Allen thing was about the dialogue I, I liked I liked the sort of that sense of the talking the dialogue um the funniness um and and again mixed with tragedy 
Butch Cassidy is the same, it, it, it has that same thing for me. I, I learned, I think, because I was really crazy about that film when I first saw it as a child. And, um, and it's how you can say so much without words, because there's those huge kind of sweeping scenes um, that you're taken on as they're tracked through the desert. There's n there's barely any talking. There's no music because the music comes in after the moment where they um, they go off to South America, and so before before that, it's, there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of pictures. That teaches me a lot about picture books. Interestingly, it's very similar. It's what can you say without the words, uh, without any sound? And then there's the amazing dialogue between those two characters, which is very, you know, it's very harsh. The way they speak to each other is very harsh, but it's a love affair. You know, they're talking, you can read between, between the lines. You know that these people are really close. You know, they're the most important person in, you know, each of their lives. So, uh, I think it taught me all of that, just as watching Alfred Hitchcock movies taught me. They're very like picture books in that way, that, that the sophistication of how he can show you a world on screen. So in Rear Window, which is a very static film, it need not be a film. It's a very strange thing to make into a film, but he makes it full of suspense and he tells you so much about those characters. So you've got Grace Kelly, who's who's very high class and a society girl. And he tells you all about the mismatch between her and her fiance, um, Jimmy Stewart, and who is a, uh, I think he's a war photographer. And by the way that they're dressed, and just by that, you, you, you know that there's something really difficult in this relationship. And he's, you know, slightly wriggling from it and anyway so I, I I watch a lot of things like that and they're very very helpful to me as an illustrator. Hello it's Artemis the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the children's writer and illustrator Lauren Child. So it's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. This week, it's the historian, Peter Frankopan, and he's going to tell you about a piece of advice he wished he'd had at the start of his career. I think when you're a writer or a thinker or an academic, there's never really an off button. You never get to go home and switch off. There's never a weekend when you can forget what you're working on. And that feeling guilty is completely normal. I wish somebody had told me that early on. I suppose as an aside, as, a, as an academic, I'd also say that I wish I'd been given advice in the first place. No one ever took me to one side and told me what lay ahead, the good and the bad. Uh, and I wish I'd been told that that was normal as well. So now I'm a little bit higher up the food chain. Um, I go and look for early career scholars and I, and I try to listen to them, give, give them a bit of encouragement, a bit of advice on what might be coming up for them. And I don't just think that's important. That's a really enjoyable part of what I do. That was Peter Frankopan. And if you were interested in what Peter had to say, you can listen to our full episode with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. 
Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Lauren Child. A big, um, or at least a much discussed point in children's books in the past couple of decades has been the arrival of, of celebrities, for, for want of a better word. So people with big existing profiles ranging from David Walliams, Meghan Markle, people like that coming, um, you know, coming into this space. What are your, your views on that? And, you know, as someone who, whose profile comes from having written this sort of stuff, is that, is that a threat or is there room for, for all? I think it really depends on how the publishers work with that, because I'm, I am a believer that anyone is allowed to, to move across and be part of any other art form or even any, any job. Um, And I would hate to live in a, in a sort of, culture said we're not allowed to move you know I'm not allowed to become a singer if I want to you know who says um so I'm not I think I think whatever that that's okay I think what I think the problem has come with the with the money that then goes with it and is then perhaps taken away from people who do this for their living um so that there's it but there becomes a big marketing spend on big names and you know there are publishers who you know who very definitely give give most of their budget to those those who they consider heavy hitters and and who can you know they'll shift a lot of books and that's that's really difficult to deal with and I do worry I do worry for for publishing because if we're to hear in this way that they keep talking about which is absolutely right that we should have inclusivity and we should hear from every voice we should be hearing from a huge range of different people both artists and writers well, there has to be a living wage attached to that. And it is very hard to earn a living as an illustrator these days. You know, I believe from looking at the statistics that these organisations put out, it's something like £10,000 is the, is the average. And, and it's, you know, for a, a year you'll earn. And, and that's that's really difficult and I have lots of illustrator friends who are giving up or you know have to take on a lot of other work and they're very established illustrators I'm not talking I mean for goodness knows how it feels to be someone just emerging just breaking into this but I'm talking about pretty established people as well and I worry if we if we put too much emphasis on on making sure that we sell a huge quantity of books by one single person are we are we taking our eye off the ball and and losing the creativity of yeah perhaps some really fantastic illustrators some really fantastic writers and we're just missing out on them um because we're we're a bit skewed in our, you know, in in the direction of making making the money, 
And I understand that because, I mean, books, books really have hardly gone up since I started. And I started in 1999 and some of the advances have not, you know, gone up. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not bemoaning my career. I've, I've, I was, I've been very fortunate, um, but royalties I can tell you have gone right down and I could not live off my royalties. And, and that does worry me because then, you know, where are we headed um, in terms of, of getting these really exciting, brilliant voices? You know, what's going to happen? To remain on the, on the theme of money, when did writing become sort of something that you could make a living off? Um, at what stage in your career or with what particular project did that become sort of a viable a viable source of income? Well, I think, again, you see, um, it wasn't how I wanted my life to pan out, but in a way I was lucky because I didn't have um, any responsibility. I didn't, I didn't own anything and I didn't have any dependence. So that allowed me to be able to accept tiny advances on what is a lot of work. So I think you get paid something like four and a half thousand to write an illustrated book. And, you know, if I worked, I could probably manage to do, not that you would get this many all piling up at once at the time, but, you, you know, I could probably do a book. A book really would take me six months, um, but I could work all over the weekend and I could work late into the night. And that was a huge advantage I also had a job as a receptionist in my friend's um, graphic design studio and that was really lucky because they were very very good to me so although it was it was a small amount of money to do that work but it was regular money so it's like a little it's a proper salary you see and then I and then they were very kind in that they said so long as you answer the phones and get the coffee and get the lunches, you know, we don't mind if you're sitting at your desk working on your books, that's fine. And so that really gave me that freedom. And then I kept my um, my Damien Hurst job for one day a week. So I, I was terrified to let that go because um, that was just good to have, you know. And so I think I... I ended up doing those sort of three things and gradually, gradually um, my book work started to come in and, and then I could support myself from that. And I can't remember, I'm afraid, at what point that, that balance sort of just gradually, gradually shifted. So I was living off the books and then I didn't, they very kindly let me keep a desk at their office actually because they had a spare desk but I didn't I no longer worked for them in the design studio. And when did it did it really take off financially for you? I saw in, in one interview an extraordinary figure saying that by 2009 you were worth over 20 million dollars I, I don't know if that's that's accurate but when when did this become when did this become an, an empire as it were? Um well, that figure will have been taken, I think, made up from from the TV tie-in stuff, I think, which I don't get that money, actually. 
um, or a very tiny portion of that, those, because they made a lot of books off the back of the television. So it sounds very glamorous, but that isn't. This is for Charlie and Lola, right? Yeah, that's right. So I, I've written sort of six original Charlie and Lola books plus a little series for teeny, teeny people based on the, not based on the show, based, you know, based on these characters that I'd come up with. And then obviously what they do is television is they, they spin, you know, each episode into a book. So there were lots and lots of those books, um, which don't really belong to me. But yes, I think it was probably, for me, I, it, it all started to come right a bit before the television, actually. And it was just the fact that I was no longer frightened. You know, I got to that point where I just felt like, oh, you know, now I don't, I'm not worrying in this in the same way that I had been. I had some really nice things happen with the books. I was, I was, as I say, I was, I was quite lucky because Clarice Bean, that's me, got noticed straight away and shortlisted for the Greenway, which was that was a huge confidence boost to me. But I think I probably was unaware at the time of how important that was because then it gets noticed. And it was it was more in the days where there's a bit more um, there was a bit more coverage of children's books. It's 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 rather depressingly gone right down now. So there's very little space to talk about about it in any serious way um, in the papers and and even on the radio, it doesn't really get much coverage. But I think for then it did get a bit and and it meant, you know, libraries, when, when libraries were more abundant, that was really important for income as well. Um, so, and then Charlie and Lola, the first one, I will not ever never eat a tomato. That, that um, won the green away the following year. So that probably boosted and boosted. So things just seemed to go in that direction, um, which was really good. And then and and then Charlie and Lola got optioned for TV. And so that was probably around 2003, I think, when then that happened. And then it aired in 2004, I believe. And then, yeah, and then things did really pick up because then you become, um, or your characters become a bit of a household name in certain households and and then worldwide as well, because the show really got picked up. So you become, you find that you become a, a household name in all kinds of funny places, you know, that you, you never realized um, that you would, you know, it, it, so, um, and I mean, funny places, not in strange places, but I mean, it suddenly pops up that, that they've heard of you in a country that you couldn't imagine that they would. And I've just been sorting out all my books because I've, everything's been in storage for some time. And, and I realised, gosh, how many foreign editions they used to make of, of books. And, and that's, that seems to have really changed because it used to be that they would print 20,000 of, of a picture book hardback. And they just expect to sell them. So that was quite normal. And now you sort of feel oh, lucky if, you, if they print five. So it's a, it's a very different world. But yeah, it was probably kind of around um, 2003, 2004. And, and, and things just grew with that 
show. Can you talk about the process of putting together one of your books? Once you've got the idea and you're sort of you become convinced that it's got legs, do you start with the images and then move on to the story? Do you start with the story and then add the images? Um, do you plot out what you're going to kind of have your characters do or do you just dive in? Um, our listeners like to get into the into the sort of specifics. So feel free to go into as much detail as you'd like. Sure. Well, if, it's a, if we're talking about a picture book, I usually write them over a number of years. So I, if I have a little idea, I'll write it down in a notebook of lots of them and it might just be a line of dialogue or it might be a few lines um, and there may be a drawing with it or there may not or I may write down a description of somebody I've seen and and then I'll write as much as I can until I get stuck and then I put it away and then I get on with something else and I keep coming back to it. So uh, my most recent picture book is a book called The Goody. And it's really about the way we will insist on labeling each other and, and how we describe children from very early on in just a few words. And you can sort of live with those words for a long time and it's quite hard to shake them, you know. So it's meant to be a sort of, a sort of wry look at that issue and um because I try not to write with a big heavy meaning attached but because it's whatever you as the reader take from it but with that book I really did want it's something that's always frustrated me so so I I I remember being a, a friend staying with some friends back in 2003 and they kept describing their daughters the goodie and or one of their daughters, and it really, I don't know, it really worried me, this. So I, I started writing this story, and then, yeah, inevitably I got sort of stuck, and so I put it away. And, and you can see, over time, I keep coming back to it and write a bit more and then cross it out, and, and then it makes it onto my laptop. That's what normally happens when it's it's got somewhere and it comes up on my laptop and then I start d doing version after version. So you end up with maybe 16 versions of it. And that book started in 2003, came out, I think in 2020 or 2021. I can't quite remember now. And um, so that's how long sometimes they take to write. And then if you saw my early work for Clarice Bean, I wrote and drew at the same time. And I don't mean drew finished pieces, but drew characters and ideas and thumbnails and things as I went, because I didn't know what I was doing. Now I don't need to do that because I see it all in my head. So I very rarely draw anything before I finish the story because I can see it happening in my head. And then I work with pencil and, um, and I, and collage. So I started using collage and cutting everybody out. So each thing is drawn separately because that way I can keep moving things around and I can change the scale and I can add things because I quickly learned that I was a terrible planner of drawings, just as I am of writing. And so I need it to be very fluid um, and you also get these lovely accidents that happen. So 
if you look at, I will never uh, ever eat a tomato um, or ever never eat a tomato. Um, you, what you notice is that, that there's a picture of Lola sitting at a wooden table. I think it's the second picture in the book. And that only happened because when I was the receptionist at this design agency, I, I had to keep, I was cutting things out and I had to keep putting them down because people would keep phoning. And so I, I was always answering phone calls and, and then I would put, put these cutouts either on my lap or on the desk and my desk was made of plywood. And I suddenly saw her against wood and I thought, oh, that's going to look great. So I, I, I ran off in my lunch hour to get some of that fake wood paper. And then I started collaging with that. And then I brought in lots of real things. So you'll see that there's a photograph of peas because I wanted to show how the peas are all the more terrifying if you hate peas, if you actually see real peas. I didn't want to paint them. I wanted to show you these are real peas. And this is what a pea looks like to someone who's very troubled by peas. Um, so it, it's, that's really what working in that way allowed me was this, this happenstance, changing my mind and figuring things out as I went. And I'm just the same as a writer. So when I'm writing my very long, my long books, like my Ruby Redfoot series, which is for young teens really, um, they're very, very plotted in a way. If you read them, the plots are very convoluted and they're thrillers. They're really, I was trying to write sort of Elmore Leonard meets Alfred Hitchcock for kids. <laughs> so that, that's the idea is that, you know, you will, you get all the banter, you get all that sort of lovely dialogue and the hanging out and the domesticity that they both put into their films and books. And, but, you know, you also get this, this good thriller feeling. I can't write a thriller if I know what's going to happen. Um, and, oh, so many publishers have tried to get me to plot because they all think it's going to be easier for me if I do that. All that happens is I get really bored because as soon as I know what's going to happen, I can't be bothered to write it. And I read um, Stephen King's book on writing. And that was the most helpful thing. So it really liberated me because he says he never plots his stories. And I just think, okay, well, if he doesn't plot them, then I don't need to plot them because, it, you know, his books always take me by surprise and they're, they're highly plotted in terms of, you know, the, the, the way that the story kind of links beautifully together and things thread through. They feel plotted, but he plots as he goes. So I, that's what I do as well. We're coming up towards the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you about your um, stint as Children's Laureate from 2017 to 2019. How did that come about? And then how did you find the experience of holding that position? You get chosen sort of unbeknownst to you. You're not part of it, um, the process. I think they... I just, do you know what? I can't remember if they only ask you when they've decided that they'd like to invite you to be children's laureate. And then you can, obviously you can say no. Um, but certainly you used to have very, very little warning. I don't know if they've changed that now because in a way it's, it's difficult because you can't do any 
planning beforehand or very little planning of what you want want to say with the time but there were many things that I wanted to talk about but I decided really yeah I wanted to talk about the value of illustration and illustration as an art form because I I was a a trustee for the House of Illustration, which is Quentin Blake's, is now rebranded Quentin Blake's Centre for Illustration, and the importance of it as an art form. It's not secondary to the words, and it's a very important thing, illustration, particularly in children's books, but beyond as well. Um, so, so I wanted to talk about that and how you don't also drawing we we tend in schools to think of it as well there are those people who are good at drawing and those people who aren't and only the people who are naturally talented might want to take it as a subject because you know you you do it because because you're good and I, I I feel very much you should do it because it gives you something just like you might take up music or you might even you might even study maths just because you love it and and it's okay um, so that was one thing. But the main thing I really wanted to talk about was um, the fact that we're all creative and this idea that people fall into different things. I am creative, I'm not creative. I don't believe in that. Um, and and the idea that we should have time, space and time. And as I've just said, I, I might spend 15 years writing a book that only has 800 words. Um, but I only get to those solutions and things I want to communicate by having the time to think about it. And yet we ask children to maybe write a story in 40 minutes. Um, and I think it's kind of unhelpful really that, that we're always pressurizing, pressuring people to have you know thoughts very quickly, react to things very quickly. Social media is about very quick reactions to things. And I think that can be very damaging uh, because you haven't fully considered what, what, what it is you want to say, but you haven't had time to sort of interact. And so I, as I'm working, I am, I'm sort of funneling things in and it might be things that come from the radio, things I've heard, it comes from music, comes from looking out of the window, comes from listening to people chatting in the post office and all of those things I wanted to encourage particularly children to take note um, and as we are more and more inclined to look down as we walk are we look, looking down at devices and things if we're lucky enough to have them that we, we, we sort of forget that there are so many things going on and, and our reading of the world around us is very important um, so that's a lot that I was talking about um, and, a, and a final question from me is about the sort of children's publishing landscape in general. Over the course of your career so far, how do you think it's changed, if it's changed at all? I think because the way artists and writers are paid, that there isn't the time. There is not the time to reflect on what's going on. I think, and I, I know it's, I know it can be quite tough being in an editor or a designer or people who work in-house as well. So they don't necessarily have the time to mentor the kind of new writers and illustrators. But I was lucky because they did give me that time all those years ago and they really worked with me. And that's how I learned 
um, to become a much better writer and illustrator. And I think if they hadn't have been able to afford me that time, it would have been that much harder. And I would have been, you know, who knows where I would have got to, who knows if I would have continued to pursue it or if I'd have even been noticed because you need that input and you need to feel like somebody is championing you as well. It's, that's really important. That sense of you're working it's not just one person's book, you're working as a sort of team of people. And it was very collegiate when I started. So there was this sense that you could talk about your book, not with your big ego, but you could talk about it as what shall we, you know, what do we think is going to work best? So yes, of course, your voice is, is the predominant voice in it. But I work with some really fabulous people and for and production people as well. I must say, you know, it's not just about the designer and editor. There are a lot of people who will help to make your work sing, you know. And and I think that is what I feel is sadly lost at the moment. It doesn't feel like it's a it's such a, a process where you have, you know, people working together with you. Having said that which sounds downbeat I think that's all part of the creative process too because that's where I began I began with things being really difficult and really challenging and things not necessarily going in the direction I wanted them to you work with and around what you've got and I think that is the creative process you don't sort of get this handle on it and know how to do things for always and forever you always get, meet these moments where things are difficult and that's why I listen to so much radio I think and so many interviews with people um, most recently um, just to make this very topical the interviews with Kate Bush who's having this big sort of moment because her work is being seen again. I mean, it's never not been seen as, as, as wonderful and creative. And it certainly has always been highly regarded, but I think it's appealing in a new way to people. But it's not that that inspires me so much. What inspires me is her resolve to keep going with what she believes in. She doesn't, she talks about not compromising and um, doing things because she feels that's the right way to do it for her and that's what she's interested in. And and the same, I think, one could say of someone like Patti Smith and I, those two women have been strangely important to me, although they're not from my world at all. But I think um, it's the way they talk about their work and the need to do their work beyond the need to be selling, the need to be popular, and the need to be sort of liked. And and I I take great heart from that. Great. Well, look, Lauren, thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes and taking us through so much of your career and watching, wishing you all the best with your projects going forward. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Lauren Child. Her website is milkmonitor.me and she's on Instagram at laurenchild, that's me. 
Her latest book, Clarice Bean Scram, is published by HarperCollins Children's. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Lauren? Given her work as an artist and a writer, I thought it was excellent that Lauren offered such a comprehensive insight into how those two disciplines work together. I was also struck by her sense of confidence in her early work, particularly her description of knowing that she had a particular vision for her story and if it didn't work out or if it wasn't commercially viable, she had at least trusted her instincts and and I guess it paid off. Um, How about you? I really enjoyed it. Um, And I also thought it was a first for the podcast because I don't think in the entire history of Always Take Notes to our shame, really, we've never had a a children's writer on. Um, I suppose we've now started right at the top of of that category. So we've established a high bar for ourselves. But it was, you know, it was it was very different to a lot of the other interviews we've had. And I thought, as you say, we've I don't think we've had someone who's also been a visual artist on. So really interesting to talk about that. And again, you know, she didn't she didn't dodge anything we asked her, particularly on the the impact of celebrities on children's mm. publishing which is definitely somewhere where where feelings run strong i both uh, read and enjoyed the clarice bean book she sent and i sent it on to my goddaughter and i was then informed that my goddaughter is four and apparently she was heard after her bedtime reading it aloud to herself um oh. upstairs so uh, oh, sweet yeah so she's, um, she's another got, fan she's got another fan yeah Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us via our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.